Let's pray together. God, it is a joy and a blessing to be gathered with the saints together today. And Lord, it is a delight to be able to spend time in your word this morning. I pray that you would humble us as we come to your word. I pray that you would instruct us and convict us. Lord, would you encourage us? Would you incline our hearts to worship and praise you? And above all, we pray that you'd get all the glory and honor today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It is an absolute joy to be with you this morning to spend time in God's word together. As Jacob mentioned, my name is Nick Frost. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors at Northwest Bible Church in St. Michael, and uh, it is my joy to bring you greetings from them today. Uh, My wife Mindy and I and our daughter Mara live in St. Michael. We've been at Northwest for about two and a half years now, and uh, we have such, uh, so enjoyed our time there. It it has been great, and I've had the joy of getting to know Jacob and recently Joey through the Pillar Network, and uh, it has been so encouraging to see what great hands that you all are in here at Grace Bible Church. I've been so encouraged by these brothers. You can tell, it is very evident that they love you all dearly and that they take their role of shepherding you very seriously. And I've been very encouraged by that and I'm I'm so grateful for that. Uh, I've never been to Grace before, but I've heard so many great things about you all And I've heard so many uh, of the exciting things that God has been and is doing here. And so it is just a a joy, like I said, and an honor uh, to be with you. And I'm grateful to spend time with you today. Uh, This morning, we're going to spend time in the Gospel of John. We'll be in John chapter 13. And I want to spend time in this passage because I think it's good to regularly remind ourselves of what gospel-centered community is and what it looks like. I think it's important for you, Grace Bible Church, just as it is with every local church, to be reminded of what Christ has called you to as a community, as the church. And so we're gonna be in John chapter 13, verses one through 17, because here Jesus, before he goes to the cross, gives some crucial instructions to his followers on how they ought to live in community with one another. Now the aspect of gospel-centered community that I want to focus on today is that of service or serving one another. There are many aspects that we could talk about, but I want to focus specifically on what it looks like to serve one another in gospel-centered community. I think we're going to see that clearly in our text today. So let's look together at the passage. I'm going to read it for us starting in verse 1. Again, it's John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. 
Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. But not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. I always find it helpful to try and boil down the text into a main idea. So here's what I think the main idea of this text is. The church is to be a community that lovingly and humbly serves one another because Jesus lovingly and humbly served us and he calls us to do the same. I'll repeat that because it's a mouthful. The church is to be a community that lovingly and humbly serves one another because Jesus lovingly and humbly served us and he calls us to do the same. I also want to offer you a few outline points that I think will help us to navigate our text today. They are, number one, the servant's motivation. We'll see this in verses one through three, the servant's motivation. The servant's example, this will be in verses four through 11, the servant's example, and the servant's exhortation. This will be in verses 12 through 17, the servant's exhortation. So we're gonna walk through verses one through 17 and through these points, and then I wanna draw out a few application points at the end. So with that said, let's start with point number one, the servant's motivation. Look with me at verses one through three. Verse 1 gives us the setting of this story. Uh, John records that this event occurred before the feast of the Passover. And the text tells us that at this point, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So John has been building up until this point. We, We have read of the fact that Jesus' hour or time had not yet come at least a few other times in, earlier in John's gospel, and now in this passage, John records that his hour had come. In other words, the cross was coming soon. And this also sets us up to understand that what we'll see in this text is very important because these are some of Jesus' final words to his disciples before he goes to the cross. But before we even get to the discourse, we read just a stunning truth. We get this intimate look at Jesus' heart and mind as the cross is looming before him. The text says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So this verse tells us about Jesus' love for his own. Who is that? Well, it's those who in the world belong to him. Those those who, as John would tell us earlier in John chapter 6, were the Father's gift to him. Those are his own, whom he's loved since eternity past. And we read that having loved them, he loved them to the end. What does that mean? Well, it could be interpreted as duration, but I don't think that's it because the nature of the love here, according to this text, is something that has occurred in the past, yet happens in an ongoing way. In other words, his love for his own didn't stop or change at the cross. His love for his own doesn't end, and indeed it doesn't change. I think the word end here is actually pointing to the degree of Christ's love for his own. I think it's referring to the fact uh, that he loved his own completely and perfectly, and it's shown in how he served his own. In other words, brothers and sisters, Christ not only went to the cross in obedience to the Father 
and for his glory, though that is the ultimate reason, he also went to the cross out of his love for you. His love for you is what motivated him to serve you at the cross. Even with all the brutality and humiliation and torture and pain that came with it, he loved you until the finish line, until the redemption for your souls was secured, and his love for you hasn't ended and hasn't changed. His love for you is perfect and complete and full. I mean, brothers and sisters, if you, if you struggle to believe that, or in a season right now where you're struggling to believe Jesus loves you, know that he has long before you were born. He has since eternity past. You're more deeply loved than you could have ever hoped for in Christ. Jesus is not indifferent about you. That is a, a lie from the enemy. Don't give that lie any oxygen. We believe what the Bible tells us, not the enemy. And the Bible tells us here that he loved his own to the end. So what we see here is that love is what motivates service. The two are inseparable. And we need to see that here because without it, we get it all wrong. And we see it clearly here that it's the heart of Christ that motivates the service of Christ. And we're going to continue to think about that truth as we continue to see it in this text. As we read on in verse 2, John lets us know that the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So it's already in Judas's heart that he's going to betray Jesus, and now it's only a matter of time until he carries out that act. It kind of seems like a random place to put this detail, but I think it's very intentional. Uh, I think John is not only providing for us just some basic context, but I think he's also contrasting the heart of the, the selfless servant, the heart of Jesus, with the selfish, devil-ridden heart of Judas here. And in doing so, he's setting us up for what's about to happen. And I think you'll see what I mean as we continue on. This brings us to point number two, the servant's example. The servant's example. Verses three through four tell us that Jesus was fully aware of his sovereign authority and his divine origin and destiny and so those are some amazing truths. Don't, don't glance over that. It's easy to just read that and move on, but John is telling us some mind-blowing things here. And it begs the question, why does John include these details? Couldn't he have just said, Jesus rose, instead of including all of that? I think John's doing a couple things here. First, I think he's reminding us of just who it is that's about to do this act of foot washing. It's the one who's sovereign over all. This isn't just some religious leader. He's the one who came from God and is going back to God. Indeed, he is God in the flesh. But he's not only reminding us of the astonishing reality of who's about to do the foot washing. The verse also tells us that it is out of this knowledge of who he was that allowed him to lower himself and serve in this way with total security and confidence. He knew who he was, and that made others' opinions about what he was doing irrelevant. When it came to serving others, he wasn't worried about his status. He wasn't worried about getting praise. He wasn't worried about others, how others would see him. He knew he was divine. He knew his divine identity, and that allowed him to serve without any sort of insecurity because he knew that there was no threat of his identity being taken away. And I want to pause there because I think there's application here for us as well. And what I mean by that is we should feel free to serve others because of our identity in Christ. I think that our hesitation or our, our unwillingness at times to serve comes from uh, an insecurity about our own identity. 
We forget who we are in Christ, and so, so we try to keep up our appearances or try to, to live for our own praise instead of serving others. But friends, remember who you are in Christ. You don't need to keep up appearances. You don't need to be afraid to become lowly to serve others. If you are in Christ, you are united to the king of the universe, and no one can take that away from you. Let your identity in him free you up to serve others. I think that's an important application point. But continuing on in verse 4, we read, He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now this would have been absolutely shocking to those in the room. I'll give you some context as to why. But first, why was there a need for foot washing? Well, in that day and place, they didn't have a lot of asphalt or concrete roads or paths. It was pretty much all dirt, and shoes in that day were more like sandals. There weren't many closed-toed shoes. And on top of that, there wasn't a fabulous sewer system, and so you had animal excrement and things on the road, and you guys, you all get the picture of that. So people would walk through all of this dirt and grime, sometimes for miles, but when you needed to enter into someone's home or a clean place, it was a common practice to have someone wash your feet so that you're not tracking all that stuff in. So that's, that's why foot washing was common, but there was something uncommon about this particular experience and uncomfortably so. Again, what is happening in the scene would have shocked everyone in that room except for Jesus. We read that Jesus gets up and he lays aside his garments, he takes a towel and ties it to his waist, and you can just imagine all the disciples are paying attention to this and looking around at each other like, what in the world is he doing? And then Jesus grabs the water basin and begins to pour water into it. And you can imagine there's just this awkward silence as they're stunned at what they're seeing. And then he comes to one of them and he starts to wash their feet and they don't know how to react. You see, what's shocking about what's happening before them is that this is the job of a servant but not just any servant. Foot washing was assigned to the lowliest servant in a household. And even beyond that, if a household had both a Jewish and Gentile servant, it was the job of a Gentile servant to do the foot washing. In other words, no one in authority washed the feet of those under them. Servants washed their master's feet, but it was absolutely unheard of for that practice to be reversed. So you can imagine that as Jesus is washing their feet, the disciples who view Jesus as their authority figure are thinking, what are you doing? This is the job for somebody under you. This is the job of a servant. But Jesus, the one who has authority over them, washes their feet. And remember, he doesn't just have authority over them. This is where that context from verse 4 comes into play. Jesus is the one who has authority over all things. He's the one who came from God and is going back to God. He is the one by whom, through whom, and to whom all things were created. He's the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity, and yet he is here taking on the form of a servant, bending down with a water basin and washing his disciples' filthy, disgusting feet. So again, we can imagine the awkward silence. Everyone's looking at each other like, what do we do? That is until we get to Peter. Peter's always the one to break the silence. I I love it. I have friends who are like Peter, and they just keep you on your toes. You never know what they're going to say. Maybe you have friends like that, too. And I always say, if you're sitting there going, I don't have friends like that, you might be the Peter among those in your life. The text tells us that 
Jesus came to Peter and said, Lord, do you wash my feet? And you don't get this in your English translations, but in the Greek, this is an emphatic, forceful question. It would be like, Lord, do you wash my feet? I mean, it, it just seems crazy to Peter. And I think we can look at Peter's question here and honestly say that it comes with good intentions. It communicates how highly he views Jesus. It shows that he was conditioned to the social norms and hierarchies of that day. We would probably say the same thing if we were in Peter's shoes. His intention was good in that. He doesn't want to see his authority figure take on the form of a servant. He doesn't want to see Jesus stoop to that level. The thought of it makes him cringe. So he has to say something. And I'm glad he does. I'm glad Jesus chose at least one disciple who, who speaks their mind. Because without Jesus, Peter's question, we wouldn't get Jesus' answer. At least not in the same way. And this happens elsewhere too, right? In other words, God blesses us in his word through Peter's lack of filter and ignorance at times. And so we see Jesus respond. He says, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. So in this answer, Jesus is hinting at the symbolic significance of the humble act he's performing. In other words, what's happening before them right now is not just about getting their feet clean. What's happening before them is a parable. It's foreshadowing what Jesus is about to do at the cross. And Jesus essentially tells them that they aren't going to fully understand the meaning of it until after his death and resurrection. We'll continue to see this parable unfold in their conversation. But Peter's not had his final word yet in this exchange. He comes back with Jesus, at Jesus with, you shall never wash my feet. And again, in the original language, this is an emphatic negation. So it could be read like, never, ever shall you wash my feet for all eternity. Very strong. And once again, it's a statement made out of good intention. But it's quickly corrected. Jesus responds to him with, a loving directness. I can imagine, uh, imagine Jesus looks Peter right in the eyes and says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. What happens? Peter's tone quickly changes. Right? He says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And it's clear that he still doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not merely talking about a bath He's referring to the forgiveness of sins. He's referring to salvation. This is what this living parable is about. If we walk it back a little bit, I think we'll see it clearly. Here's what I think we've seen symbolically piece by piece so far. Jesus rising from supper is symbolic of him rising from his seat in heaven. Jesus laying aside his garments is symbolic of him, as Philippians 2 would put it, emptying himself. Jesus taking the towel and tying it around his waist is symbolic of him taking on the four form of a servant ready to serve. Jesus pouring out water into a basin is symbolic of him pouring out his blood. The, the disciples' filthy, dirty, stinky, grimy feet is symbolic of their sin. Jesus washing his disciples' feet with the water is symbolic of him cleansing them with his blood, of him dying for them. And then we'll see Jesus sit down again in verse 12, which I think is symbolic of him uh, sitting down at the right hand of God after all of this has been accomplished. It's, 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 a, it's a parable. It's incredible. It makes sense now, right? So when Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me, he's essentially saying that in order for you to be cleansed of your sin and have share with me, to have a place with me, you must be washed. I must wash you. 
So he's telling Peter, in order for you to have life, I must give mine up for you. I have to die in your place. I must serve you in this way. I mean, friends, this text tells us a sobering truth that unwashed people have no share with Christ. That's sobering. You cannot enter into eternity with God unless your filth and grime and stain, unless your sin has been washed away. And there's only one who can do that. It's Jesus. Salvation is based upon what he did for us, not what we can do for him. That's what this parable points to, as Philippians 2 puts it, that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, what a beautiful reality that is. The king over all humbled himself, was born in the likeness of men, took on the form of a servant, and served us by dying on the cross so that we, the filthy, could be cleansed. It's the greatest act of servant the world has ever known from the greatest servant the world has ever known. And apart from him serving in this way, apart from his death and resurrection, you cannot be cleansed. He has to serve you. And really when it comes to that, there are two responses, right? Those who don't know Jesus well don't really wrestle with that. They aren't focused on Jesus. They, they just want to know what's in it for them. They just want the cleansing of that. But those who know and love Jesus have a response like Peter's. They, they shudder at the thought of Jesus serving them. They shudder at the thought of their authority figure uh, emptying himself and taking on the form of a servant. He's too precious to them to want to humiliate to want to see him humiliate himself. They don't want to see him stoop down and serve in this way, but the tension here is that he has to. He has to, he has to be arrested. He has to be wrongly sentenced to death. He has to be mocked. He has to have nails driven through his hands and feet. He has to be raised up on a cross to be displayed like a criminal. He has to suffocate and die. He has to drink the wrath of God for our sin. He has to do all of this if we must live. And brothers and sisters, the, the good news of the gospel is that he did. Brothers and sisters, he loved you and I till the end. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, know that he wants you to let him wash you clean so you can have life. Let him do that. I pray that today would be the day that you come to saving faith in this servant king. I would love to talk to you more about him after the service or to have you talk to somebody around you about him after the service. Don't leave today, if that's you, without having that conversation. But if we enter back into the scene again where we left off, Peter's just shown that he still doesn't quite understand. His tone is changed because he wants to share with Jesus. And Jesus says the one who has bathed, does not need to wash. He's talking about regeneration there. It's a one-time deal. If you've been born again, then you're clean. So then what does he mean by that next part when he adds except for his feet? Well, I think he's talking about sanctification there, whereas regeneration is a one-time act. Sanctification is an ongoing process. So he's saying if you've been bathed, you're clean, but as you, you know, travel through this fallen world, your feet will get dirty, but having dirty feet does not mean that you've lost your salvation. It doesn't mean that you need a full cleansing again. It just means that you need your feet washed. It's symbolic of sanctification. And then in verse 11, he says that they are clean, but not all of them, and he explicitly says that because he knows Judas is about to betray him. So he's alluding to the fact that Judas is not clean. And then we get to verse 12, which leads to our final outline point, Ellen point number three, the exhortation of the servant. 
the exhortation of the servant. Verse 12 says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? And it seems as though they don't understand, so he explains it for them. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And so he's affirming the titles they give him. Both titles point to his divine authority, right? And that teacher refers to the role of a, a spiritual instructor, and Lord is, the, is a title of authority. And so he affirms these titles, and then he uses that to give basically a greater to lesser argument. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And it's important to note that that word ought there is not a term of recommendation. It is a term of command. So he's exhorting this community of his followers to wash one another's feet. And again, this is not merely about washing feet. He's basically saying they ought to serve one another and Jesus continues on by saying for I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you truly truly I say to you a servant is not greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him if you know these things blessed are you if you do them so Jesus tells them that he's given them an example that they should follow and he's essentially made the argument that if he serves then his disciples who are below him are not above serving because a servant isn't greater than their master And then he tells them that they will be blessed if they not only know these things, but if they actually do them. So that's where our text ends for today. But I want to spell out a few more application points. I think it would be helpful for us to understand uh, how to live out service and serving one another in gospel-centered communities. So I want to draw out three more application points. First, Grace Bible Church... As a gospel-centered community, you are to follow Jesus' example and serve others as he served you. This is pretty explicit, again, from his command that he gives in verse 14, but I want to point out a couple of important details here. The first important detail here is that serving one another comes from our selfless love for one another. We saw this in verses 1 through 3. It is possible to serve others out of obligation or with a cold heart, but that's not the example that Jesus gives and calls us to follow. He doesn't grumble when he's washing their feet, though he probably could have. He doesn't grumble even at the cross. He selflessly serves out of love for his own. And friends, he calls us to do the same. The second important detail this text shows us is that there is no service below you. I mean, you you understand that's what he's getting at here, right? If the king of the universe has humbled himself to serve in the way he does, then who are you and I to look at an act of service and think that we're above it? Friends, may we not catch ourselves thinking that we are beyond serving in some capacity. That's easier said than done. That's, that's difficult, right? I mean, we're conditioned in our society to, to get ahead, to jump through promotion so that we don't have to do the less desirable job. But that's not the way of the kingdom. So ask yourself, are there service opportunities you've passed on because you thought yourself too highly to do them? Are there people who you haven't served because they haven't done anything for you? Or maybe that they've wronged you in some way? Something very convicting about this passage is that Jesus washed Judas' feet knowing he would betray him soon. So ask God, ask those questions and ask God to convict you of these things and then ask, how can I humble myself and selflessly serve my brothers and sisters? And think about 
I mean, how things would change if you approach those around you in this way. How would this body of believers benefit from your loving and selfless service? I'm sure there are many opportunities to serve here. How would this body benefit? And we can break it down even further. How would your marriage benefit if you lovingly and selflessly served your spouse? How would your family benefit if you lovingly and selflessly served your children? And you're called to be a gospel-centered community on mission as well. So ask yourself, how would your relationships at work change if you sought to lovingly and selflessly serve your coworkers? How would your relationship with your neighbors change if you selflessly served them? I'm not saying you all are not doing these things. I think you are. But I just want to encourage you in that. Ask yourself those questions and then commit to serving in new ways. Secondly, Grace Bible Church, as a gospel-centered community, you are to allow others to follow Jesus' example by letting them serve you. And what I mean by this is that if Jesus has called others to follow his example as well, then we ought to allow others to serve us. Don't let your pride get in the way of that. You need to become comfortable with both serving and being served. You realize that you can actually hinder somebody's ability to be faithful to this call by extinguishing their opportunity to serve you. Don't do that. Let others serve you as well. Let others build you up in Christ with their service. Now, that doesn't mean abuse someone's service. I know there's probably kids in here thinking of their brothers and sisters and thinking, you can certainly serve me. As soon as we get home, you can clean my filthy room. That'd be great. And then, well, I got a long list of things. We're not looking to take advantage of one another, but you must be a community that allows others to selflessly and lovingly serve you as well. And lastly, Grace Bible Church, you are to rejoice in the way of Jesus. You are to rejoice in the way of Jesus. Remember at the beginning, when John includes the detail about the devil having already put into Judas's heart to betray Jesus, when John includes that detail to really show the way of, of the enemy, to show the way of Satan, which is always about one's own gain and doing whatever it takes to get one's self-glory. It is selfish, it's prideful. I mean, think about Judas. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He was selfish to the point where he would hand over the Son of God in order to get a little bit of silver. It was all about him. That's not the way of Jesus and his kingdom. Praise God. The way of Jesus' kingdom is about selflessness and love and humility. It's about looking out for the well-being of others first. If you were to draw out the organizational hierarchy of the kingdom, the role of servant would be at the top. Jesus flips everything that we know and understand from the world upside down. What a joy it is that God has made it that way. What a joy it is to be in a community that is about those things, about selflessness and love and humility and so on and so forth. And a community made up of individuals who understand all this and serve one another is a blessed community. We actually see this in verse 17. And this isn't talking about being blessed with health or wealth. It's not a prosperity gospel. It's not that kind of blessing. It's a blessing that comes from living together in obedience to Christ. It's a blessing that comes from following the one who shed his blood for you and I, who served us in that way so that we may have life. It's a blessing beyond anything that this world can give us. So Grace Bible Church, just as he served you all, you all ought to serve one another. And that doesn't mean doing exactly what he did, 
for you can't do that anyway, but it does mean doing as he did. It does mean serving one another. And when you do, you spur one another on to godliness. When you do, you spur one another on to praising him and enjoying him more fully. And who doesn't want to be a part of a community like that? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for giving us understanding of what it looks like to, to serve one another in gospel-centered community. We thank you for Jesus' example that we can look to the greatest servant who ever lived to gain wisdom on this. God, I pray that you would help Grace Bible Church to, to be a community that is eager to serve one another and love one another, and, and not only one another, but also their community. And I pray that in doing so, they would experience your blessing and would together enjoy you more fully. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.